Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from some of the top achievers in our home state of South Carolina. These neighbors of ours will also share their time-tested personal philosophies and solutions to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in Greenville, South Carolina. She is the executive director of Rise Prevention, a nonprofit in South Carolina that focuses on early prevention and intervention related to substance abuse and addiction. She created the signature programming now provided by Rise during her former role as community relations director at the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Her entrepreneurial spirit and ability to foster critical collaborations across the public private and nonprofit sectors has made Rise Prevention the foremost evidence-based drug prevention and intervention program provider for adolescents and their families in South Carolina. Welcome to the show, my new friend, Martine Hello Allen. Hey, Martine. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I am doing great, Martine. I am very excited to hear from you. Like I said, I've been listening to some of the podcasts you've been on before and uh, and digging up stuff on your website. I'm excited to hear about the impact you guys are making at Rise. But before we jump into your company, I would love to hear about your personal journey to success. Uh, you've had some of your own challenges and setbacks over the years. Would you mind sharing your story and the lessons you learned along the way uh, to help catapult you into success? Yes. And you know, that's such a great question, but it's such a difficult one to know exactly where to start because there are so many different factors in my life that have really culminated into what I've decided to do as my career and why I have a passion for it and therefore why I'm pretty good at it. And I, uh, so I appreciate and I really treasure the struggles in my life that got me to where I am today. Those struggles that are circumstances that I had to rise above. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, I just had to look for solutions. I had to say, you know, what do I want out of my life? You know, and, and I'm one of those people that was your, I guess you could say your quintessential at risk student. Um, just having come from a divorced family, one of my parents being, um, an alcoholic also participating in other drug use, um, I've also gone through things in my life, such as sexual trauma at a very young age, starting at the age of four, then at the age of 13, um, having gone through an incident where I was taken advantage of by a not so much older gentleman, but, but you know, somebody that pressured me into doing something that I really should have, have had no business doing. Um, and so I was your perfect candidate for teen pregnancy, drug use, dropping out of school. And for some reason that just didn't happen. Mm. But I'm not going to say that things were, were very smooth along the way. There were lots and lots of mistakes that I made, but I will say this is that there were great people that I met along the path of my life, specifically in my teen years that were integral in sort of buffering some of those adverse childhood experiences that I went through to where I didn't have, I didn't have to pay that, that great of a cost because there was something there sort of to neutralize it. 
Now I have been alone, living alone since I was almost 16 years old. I worked a full-time job and went to and went to sorry high school during my 11th and 12th grade years. Um, I also worked three jobs and went to university. I'm a graduate of Furman University, and I'm very, very grateful to that school for seeing in me and believing in me um, something that they thought you know was very, very special. Um, but I will say this is that my life and where I am today is in thanks to the trials that I went through yeah. and thanks to the things that I had to learn how to overcome because at those real pivotal moments in my life, I had to make a choice. Am I going to surrender or am I going to live into this belief that somehow was instilled in me that I've got a really big purpose? that I have a, something special to do in my life, that I have something to give to the world um, that only I could give. And I, and I really believe that that's the case for everyone. It's just people have to learn how to claim it. Mm. And, and I find that you can choose to be a victim all of your life, or you can choose to be a victor. Um, and I chose to be a victor. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have challenges along the way, missteps along the way because of the misunderstanding of really how to do that um, until I was was much older, probably right around 30 when I finally started to get it, you know, um, and start stopped making those consistently negative decisions in my life that were just products of what I had grown up learning to do. So what was it that uh, throughout this journey, you said that you were the quintessential at-risk student that you had all these factors kind of stacked against you, but you didn't fall into the, the the addiction, the pregnancy, all that other stuff. What was it that made it that made you different? What was it that that kept you from falling into that? Well, I think the very the very most important thing was that somebody told me about God. Somebody told me about my identity in Christ and the fact that the world is one thing, but Christ and God, they're another thing. Yeah. And so he's the one who created me. My grandmother taught me that he's the one who created me and gave me something special. And I have to learn how to, to live into that purpose and that loving him is the most important thing that I could ever do with my life. But learning how to do that while being an angry child feeling as though I had been robbed of a wonderful childhood, not being like any of these other kids that seemed to have two parents, this wonderful life. They didn't have, you know, nine out of the 10 aces that I had growing up. You know, I had to learn how to stop being resentful about that and to learn that despite my circumstances, that there was a creator who loved me and created me for a reason and a purpose that was only mine. And that I needed to give myself a shot to see what that was. Yeah. Um, I'd also say too, great teachers and counselors, phenomenal teachers and counselors who looked at me and said, not you. We see yeah. something in you. We see a strength in you. We see a leader in you. And they really advocated for me. And that has a lot to do with why I made the RISE program and I RISE for schools the yeah. way that I did. Because they had such a huge impact on my life and showed me that I can be whatever I set my mind to and that really good mental relationships are so critical. So faith was a big part of this, uh, I guess, protective bubble, as well as those 
mentors or, or teachers in your life that were kind of helping shield you from falling into that quintessential at-risk role? Yeah. And it's interesting that you say the word shield because they they really couldn't shield me per se, but what they did do is they created opportunities for me to live into my strengths. Mm -hmm. And when I started doing that, I started believing in who I am. I started believing in the potential for me to really be able to be resilient and be successful. Um, And that, you know, my circumstances don't determine me. What determines me and what I'll do are my own choices and what I choose to focus on in my life. So why do you say that they can't shield you? I and, and I agree with you, but I'm trying to understand that too, because like I grew up in a Christian environment my whole life too. I grew up uh, in a Christian school and um, uh, a Christian family, but I still know people that were in that same environment as me that did fall into addiction, that did fall into early pregnancy, that did fall into some of these things. Um, and, and I feel like sometimes that even in those environments, they were trying to keep a protective bubble and shield us from things. But the, the world is still real and we still, you know, you can't necessarily shield people from it. So, so, so help me dive into that, Martine. What do you mean when you say that? What I mean when I say that is because teachers and counselors only see you in school. They have a certain degree of closeness to you. And that relationship goes from the moment that you enter the school doors or you're participating in a school activity until you leave. And then you go home. And then you have to still be back in those environments that maybe are not so good for you. So they put forth a protective factor that sort of, it was protective, but it couldn't shield me 100% from some of the other adverse things that continued to occur in my life, which ultimately as a teen, not even 16 years old, had me move out of my house. So it's not necessarily about protecting you from reality uh, and the rest of the world, but it's more about instilling a purpose or a vision inside of you that gives you that strength, that gives you that uh, true north when you come upon reality. Is that what you're saying, Martine? 100%, 100%, because they could not change my circumstances. But what they could do is make me believe that I could, through my choices, be resilient and rise above those circumstances because I have a greater purpose So I don't get stuck in the muck muck and the mire of things that are not perfect in my life. So really, it's about inspiration and encouragement. Yeah. It reminds me of the book uh, by Simon Sinek, Start With Why, right? Mm. If you've got a big enough why, then the challenges don't really count. If you've got a big enough dream or purpose or vision, then the, the obstacles of life come upon everybody. Right, Martine? That's right. That's right. And I mean, I even would agree with you in the fact that I kind of turn that a little, turn that around a little bit when I'm talking to our students, you know, and what I do in drug prevention, it always comes down to the why. Hmm. It always does. Yeah. What motivates you? What's driving you? And that can either be positive and wonderful, or it can be very negative and destructive. Yeah. So I, I, I know you had even other uh, I don't know if you call it obstacles or challenges that you had to overcome too, but you're first, first generation immigrant. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so my dad, I was born over in Beirut. Um, my, my mom though is American. So I was born in Lebanon, lived in Dubai until I was seven years old and then came over to the United States when my mom and my dad divorced. Unfortunately, it was a pretty, pretty not good situation. Um, yeah. You know, and it was it was very jarring for me and very traumatic 
Um, so that's how I came here to the United States. And I moved right to Simpsonville. And ironically, right across the street is my grandparents' house where I grew up when I first came here. And then I happened to come around full circle and build my house right across the street. That's awesome. And you mentioned earlier, you said that something clicked when you were about 30 years old. Uh, so you obviously you heard about Jesus and your your relationship with him prior to that, correct? Right. What was it that clicked when you were 30? I think what clicked when I was 30 is that I started understanding that definition of insanity. <laughs> yeah. Insanity, meaning you're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And for a long time in my life, because I lived in fear, I lived in anxiety, I didn't know what what I was going to do next. I also was trying to find every way that I could to survive since I was on my own. You know, I start, I made very poor decisions. And I made decisions that were founded on my own self-control, my own power, my own sort of capability to decide what my life was going to look like. I was trying to make the plan for my life. Yeah. And then when I realized the things that I was doing in my life were really destructive because my decisions were being made based on my unmet emotional needs that I had carried on for a really long time in my life. You know, and I learned that this interesting fact, it's just mind-blowing to me, is that the first age at which we experience trauma, if we do not properly process that and really work through it and work through the depreciating, false, negative narrative that's associated with that, then we will remain emotionally the same age as when we suffered that trauma. Mm. And so I realized how many things that I was doing in my life were very sort of toddlerish, you know, or still like a teenager, like making a decision that a teenager would make completely irrational, not very thought out, very emotionally driven how I would react to people doing me wrong, you know, how I would react to not being successful at certain things. And I'm like, wow, that is so true. When I learned that fact, I started looking back on myself and how I would react to certain situations, the relationships that I would get in, things of that nature, how I would react when things wouldn't go right. I'm like, you know what? I was acting like a four-year-old. I was acting like a 13-year-old. That's absolutely true. So when you think, yeah, sorry, when you look back at your life and you find out that you are acting like a four-year-old or a 13-year-old or whatever, how do you unpack and get unstuck? Is is it just the acknowledging that that there was a trauma you didn't deal with or some kind of thing? Or is there a a process? Is there a recipe to to get unstuck from that? So you're not a four-year-old anymore? Well, that's a great question. Wonderful question. It's a process. It's a process that first starts with the acknowledgement and then it starts and then you've got to continue on to understanding the why you've got to move on to understanding that just because people did, did that thing to you or caused you that harm doesn't mean that you deserved it. Doesn't mean that you asked for it. It means that those people didn't have a conscience or they didn't even know how to process their own feelings and hurt other people because hurting people hurt people. Mm. So to come to that realization of that and to 
take off the blame from myself, therefore remove the shame. Mm. Because it wasn't my actions that did those things. However, because I wasn't taught how to react properly or process those emotions properly, I only knew what I knew to do. Yeah. Because we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so I was very happy to come to the point of realizing that there's something wrong, that I keep repeating the same cycle over and over again. And somebody asked me a really cool, great question. They said, so what have you done up into in your life up until now to get by day to day, to put a smile on your face, to make your life worth living, right? And so I would just kind of talk, I talked to the person, just told him a little bit about my story. And then he asked this really poignant question. He said, how's that working for you? That is a great question. And my answer was, it's not, it's not. And so if I want something different, that means my input better be different. I better make different choices. I've got to have a different perspective on life. And so that's when I went on a journey to discover what does it mean to be really be alive? What does it mean to have a, have a soul, have a spirit, have a purpose? Why am I here? So I started asking myself and I asked myself these two very, very core questions. Who am I and why am I here? And every single person is going to have to answer that sometime in their life. And if they can't answer it for themselves, there's a world that's out there that's willing to try and give you that answer. Mm. But it comes with control. It comes with manipulation. We have to learn that answer for ourselves and be steadfast in it. And then when I started to ask that question, those two questions, there was no way that I could get around the very, very true fact that those questions are absolutely unanswerable without a relationship with my creator. Hmm. He's the one who knows. Because if you base who you are uh, on any temporary or changing, I'll I'll say changing thing, because uh, for example, if I say I'm a, I'm a salesman, well, if I base my identity on being a great salesperson, I'll have my good days and my bad days. I'll have my ups and my downs and my identity will be all over the place if I'm wrapping it around that. Uh, whereas Martine, if you base it on something that's solid rock, I love the story in the Bible where they talk about building your home on a solid rock, right? Because right. he does, because he does not change. Um, and I think that I, I understand where you came to that. Now, when you're doing that internal work, when, when you're looking back at 30 years old, when Martine is uh, examining what what she's been doing and the insanity, doing the same thing over and over and how is it working? How do you does it just take a, is it just one of those aha moments like, oh, my gosh, like a revelation? Or is it you're having to do internal work and it is it is every day it's study it's it's jumping it's journaling or what what all is that what is the exercise because i love people that say oh yeah you know i just found out and i decided to change and i I moved this way but what's the work involved it's to look at yourself to look at who you are and to reveal yourself to yourself and that means a lot of writing 
writing, 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 getting everything out, all those feelings, all that anger that you have that's pent up against people that did you wrong, people that set you up possibly for failure, people that didn't didn't respect you, people that exploited you. Hmm. And also getting honest with yourself about things that you got yourself into because you got yourself into it. Yeah. Choices made out of ignorance that you can blame nobody else. Right. Four, and really just having a heart to heart with yourself to know what, who you are, your mistakes, your achievements, all of those things, what has brought you to this point? And also realizing, why are you upset? Why are you not happy? Mm. What are you unsatisfied with about life? And I remember one of the pivotal moments that I had when I really was thinking about these things is that I took a pastor up on his offer, his advice to me. And he said, Martine, you need to have a heart to heart with the Lord and you need to tell him all the reasons why you are angry and upset with him. Mm. And just let it out. All of your resentment, all of your sorrow, all of your victim sort of mentality of how you've been victimized and violated and how you think God has left you and why did he allow this to happen to you? Just let it out. Because when you let it out into the light, it then gives God the chance to work on it because you hear it. It's verbalized. Mm -hmm. So now you understand what you're really up against what you're really fighting, what it's going to take for you to start changing your life around. And you know what came out of that conversation with God? It started out with me being angry with him. And then it turned around to me being very, very sad for myself. Yeah. And I and know for uh, me, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, I, I feel like a lot of people, especially growing up in a Christian environment, that we're told don't blame God. Don't, you know, it's not God's fault. And, but I do feel like you said there is some comfort in, you know, God doesn't care. God, God knows who's at fault and who's not, but, but there's comfort in just for us. It's, it's cathartic to shout at God and say, what have I, what, why are, why are you failing me? You know? Um, I mean, even Jesus on the cross said, why have you abandoned me? Right. Exactly, exactly. And so if you're a believer, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so then the Holy Spirit will take over and clarify your thoughts. It is so cathartic and transformational that what started out as being mad at God now turns out to being sad for yourself, to right. loving yourself and weeping for yourself, right. not as a victim, but as someone who, yes, should have been treated better, should have been loved better, right? Hmm. Not only by other people, but by yourself. Right, right. I think that's and that's one of the big that's that. one of the big steps too, Martinez. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, we we're talking about your story. We're kind of trans. Uh, we're, we're doing a, a small shift, uh, and I like to say let's make a pivot. But this really, your story has a lot to do with our topic of the day, which is. We're going to talk about addiction and we're going to talk about recovery. We're going to talk about the problem that it is. And we're going to talk about how to move forward and how to, how to, how to prevent it. And to begin with, um, but uh, golly, where was I? I? I think that some people never get to that part where they even can have that cathartic experience where they can just blame God. I think that you said, acknowledging that there's an issue, acknowledging that you've had this past trauma, acknowledging something is like you said, that may be step one. 
And then having that great conversation with God, uh, having those conversations with ourself journaling or whatever to, to discover those answers to the questions, who am I? Why am I here? Uh, I think that one step that a lot of people leave out when they're blaming God, and then all of a sudden you said, I become sad for myself. Well, some people, they 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 take the target and they blame God. And then as they're having the cathartic experience, realize, wait, I'm to blame. And they just blame. The, and now they're walking around still with this heavy guilt and this shame instead of releasing it, instead of saying, I can forgive. And maybe there's other people. Well, I'm not blaming God, but I'm shifting it to blame someone else now, too. But how important is it? to have that forgiveness of not just others, not just God, but mainly forgiving yourself. Oh, it's so important because if you don't do that, then you're going to keep harming yourself, whether physically or through relationships that you have, bad decisions that you're going to make. It will be a self-conscious sort of continuation of that self-harm, that self-depreciation. And what I would like to say is this, is that I understood the difference between a legalistic view of who God is and a grace view of who God is. Well, now that's big. Help, help unpack that. Help us unpack that because that is huge. Sure. sure. Because when you have a legalistic view of God, then that means that you, 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 you think that his view of you is based on your performance. That his view of you is based on what you have or haven't done right. And when you shift that into a grace perspective, doesn't matter anymore. What matters to God is ultimately your redemption. Mm. And so whatever it takes to get there, that's what God wants. That's what he wants. He's a God of love, infinite, unconditional love. And on top of that, he happens to be omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, mm. which means that when you surrender to, to, to rest in his grace, and to kind of have a little start over for yourself and say, I give it all to you, God, I've messed it up, but I'm not a bad person. I've messed it up because I'm not God. I'm not you, yeah. but thank you, God, for loving me so much that through your Holy Spirit, you live in me and therefore I can allow you to live through me hmm. to make those corrections in my life. Let me tell you, that makes God the very happiest. That's what he wants us to do. Grace is so tricky for us as human beings to understand, for, for really for us to grasp, Martine. Like we can mentally say, okay, yeah, God forgives me. God's perfect. I'm not. And he loves me for who I am. But even still, we walk out the door. We, we, have, we understand that. We speak it. As soon as we stand up and walk out the door, we think, I've got to still prove myself. I've got to follow, I've got to follow these rules and I've got to prove myself. How do you shift that mentality and make it a, make it a, uh, your whole being understands grace? I think there's two things that I would say to that. The first thing is that you have to have an understanding that you can be in the world, but not be of the world. The world does a lot of things that are, that are performance driven. Yeah. Okay. Nobody's just good enough, right? Very hard to get unconditional love from this world. You're not going to get it. The second thing that I would say um, is that you got to understand that as a believer, you're not a human being living a spiritual experience. If you are a believer, then that means that you've been reborn, that you now have the Holy Spirit, God himself residing in you, which means that you are now a spiritual being living a human experience. Hmm. 
And so that spiritual connection, that to me is the thing that aligns you. You have to understand that fully and you have to believe that. And you know what? God wants you to ask him to help you believe that. God wants you to ask him to prove it to you because he will. He will show you. And then once you start living as a spiritual being in the, that's having a human experience, all of a sudden, bam, everything changes. And you now see everything through God's lens. Hmm. You are truly holy. And that doesn't mean perfect. Holy means set apart. Oh. God did not ask for perfection. God asked us to choose to be set apart from the world. And there is no performance involved in that. All there is involved in that is surrender and faith. Wow. I love, I, I am 42 years old and I maybe I've heard that definition of holy before, but I love how you, and I'm sure that that's probably the, the literal definition of holy is set apart. Um, but it, it, but it helps the mind shift there instead of thinking I'm holy because I am blameless. People think holy means blameless or means, uh, sinless or whatever, but holy means set apart. It, it has nothing to do with me. I didn't do the setting apart. God did. That's right. That's right. How in the world would God be able to expect for us to be perfect? Yeah. We're living in a fallen world. We yeah. have fallen bodies. We have fallen minds. God is just. He is righteous. He is ever loving. That was that's totally the opposite of how God thinks. We put that upon ourselves. The world puts that upon us. People who use the church as a mechanism of control put that on us. But we go to the word and that's where you learn what the truth is about God. And I'm telling you, the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life, greatest soul greatest thing that I've ever done in my life is I've thanked God for all my struggles, all my success, everything good, everything bad. And I have given myself to him, him being my creator and told him, you do with my life, whatever you want. I have no preference. I want to know why you created me. I want to know why I'm here because I know that if I get that answer from you and you show me that, it's going to be something that I never wanted to miss. And that's what I tell my sons. I got two sons. Every day I tell them that. I said, guys, you've got a purpose that is God-given for your life and you don't want to miss it. And I've heard uh, one of my previous guests talked about overcoming depression and they, and they mentioned that depression is really a, it's a sign. It's a symptom that you're not in, you're not pursuing your purpose. You're not pursuing what you're made here to be for. Uh, so, so it's almost like if you're fighting depression, then that should be a, a red flag for you that, okay, something needs to change in my life. Instead of battling depression itself, discovering what that purpose and what that vision, what that, what your, what your purpose of your life, your why, why am I here? Uh, can help you fight through that. Oh yeah. Oh, I can't, I uh, bravo to whoever you interviewed that said that, because that is exactly right. Um, I can't tell you how many people that I have been friends with that I've mentored young, old, doesn't matter. That is the root. That is the root. They're just discontent. Yeah. They're discontented and they're constantly fighting these battles or these 
closed doors and people are like, why is this happening to me? Why do I keep doing this all the time? Why do these doors keep closing? It's because you are not in the flow. You are not in alignment. Hmm. And if God is the omniscient, omnipotent God that he is, mm-hmm. he cannot righteously allow you to continue in that without any problem. Yeah. You will be discontented Yeah, until you are in alignment. And I think where it can get tricky too, Martine, just in, and this is speaking from my personal life, is that there are times where you are in alignment and you feel like you're in the purpose, but then the seasons of your life change. And maybe the, where you were in alignment, the purpose for that time has been, is expired. And now you need to move on to a new season. It's, I like to to talk about the the story in the Bible where Elijah, uh, the, the Creek runs dry. Do you remember that story in the Bible? Yeah. Um, but it's because God had him there for a moment of time, but he, he dried up the Creek to get him to move on. But there's so many of us, that we feel that, and, and it's, I think that's where we can get into an even deeper depression. If you've ever felt the peace, if you've ever felt that alignment, and then all of a sudden it's not there anymore, then that's when a deep depression can set in because you feel like, well, this is, I was in alignment. I feel like I'm in the right place, but we have to figure out, okay, well, I need to move on. This is, this is a sign from God that I need to move. I, there's something else that my that's purpose right. has changed or, or season or whatever. That's right. You know, and it, and it also is likened to pruning right? So the Lord, his goal for us is to always consistently get closer and closer to to Jesus Christ likeness. Is that correct? So it takes pruning, it takes trials, it takes tribulation. I love Paul. Paul was amazing. What a gift that he gave us through his relationship with Christ and then writing it down for us in such a phenomenal way. We should look at our trials and tribulations as great gifts from the Lord, because when he does that, he's about ready to grow you and get you to the next level. And the only thing that you got to be consistent about is believing that good will come of the situation. As long as you stay in alignment and are obedient, my most famous, I'm not famous. My most favorite pastor of all time recently passed away. And that's Dr. Charles Stanley. And he changed my life with his teachings, with his application of the word. And I'm trying not to cry because I've been crying for like a week, you know. Um, But he says something that's really, really important that I will live on for the rest of my life. And that is what we have to do as Christians is be obedient. Be obedient to the word. And we have the luxury of leaving all the consequences to God. Mm. It works every time. But it's scary. It's fearful for people who don't understand the Lord. It's fearful for people who don't feel the Holy Spirit residing in them to know that the power of God is indeed in them. And there's a connection desiring and hungering for that relationship is where we start. And when we do that, God will never leave us empty. He will never not answer our call. He lets you be broken so that he can build you up the way he wants to. Mm -hmm. Whether that's you as a whole person 
or those little things in your life that you've got to work on, you know? Yeah. There's been many setbacks in my life. So but with speak, each setback, there's a there's a move forward. When you speak about the word obedient, uh, coming from a very legalistic background myself, we hear the word obedient and we think, okay, what's the list of rules I need to obey? What's the list of rules I need to follow? But when you say it, uh, you're not talking about legalism. You're talking about grace. You're talking about being obedient to the will of God, to the Holy Spirit, to the to the purpose within you. Is that what, is that what you're saying, Martine? One hundred percent. Because believe me, and you know this, and probably the majority of people that are listening know this. When you're about to make a wrong decision, there's something inside of you that checks you real quick, and you can either choose to go with it or choose not to. That choosing and that choice that you make in that moment, that's the demonstration of obedience. What would God have me do? And I also, and I say this, and I say this to my kids, when you're making a decision about your life, imagine if Jesus is really physically right next to you watching everything you do. Yeah. Would that change the way you make that decision? Mm. Of course it would. Of course it would. But not because of fear. It's because God really genuinely wants the best for us. And then when you start living into that, you want the best for you too. And so you start making decisions that protect you from consequences, that protect you from the pitfalls that our flesh can have us fall into. Yeah, And that's where power comes from. Martine, I feel like we're having a lot of great breakthroughs when it comes to uh, getting unstuck, when it comes to getting uh, dis- discovering our purpose, discovering who we are. Um, so I almost hate to do this, but I want to pivot to, to talk about our, our, our topic specifically because I've realized that addictions nowadays, um, I one of the things that I'm very grateful for is that I did not grow up with this, that I am not a part of Generation Z that I'm not a part mm. of Generation Y. I did not grow up with a cell phone in my pocket, right? There's yeah. so many what things that these so many things these kids have stacked against them. Now, technology is a great it's it it is great, but at the same time, there's so many like just just the other day I was reading an article talking about notifications. You know, somebody uh, the cell phone in a, of a seven year old or an eight year old or nine year old that they've got in their pocket and it gets a buzz a buzz every time they get a like on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, and it gets a little bit of a buzz and that buzz releases the dopamine and the chemicals in their brain and they become addicted to that. It's it's a literal chemical addiction, but it's also an approval addiction and these are set at a very young age and social media, cell phones, vaping, right? There's so many ways that kids can create addictions nowadays that just didn't exist when you and I were kids. So first of all, I want to talk about the, 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 the problems and how can we, I guess you can't necessarily shield or protect or, or, or uh, put the bubble around these kids but how do we conquer these addictions? Uh, and, and I know we spoke to those a little bit, but but what are some of the things specifically that you and your your program, the Rise program, are doing? Well, we go, let's let's go back to what we said um, before a little earlier. We focus on the why. We focus on the why and really getting down to that, not so much the what. Because honestly, Jonathan, we don't have a drug problem in this country. There's no problem getting drugs wherever you go. You can yeah. even order them off the internet and have them sent to your mailbox. What we have is a heart problem. 
that's being medicated by drugs and other addictive behaviors. We have a relationship deficiency problem in our society. When we see these kids and they, they're doing drugs and they're doing some destructive things, I really don't focus on that. What I focus on is the driver of that destructive behavior. What is it in them that is so discontented that they have to go to this source or this source for relief, Mm. for validation, for escape, all of that. And you're right. These kids are being primed to be the most addicted. And I say this and I unabashedly say this, the teen generation and the younger generation these days, they are being targeted actively to become the most addicted generation this world has ever known. Mm-hmm. just a fact yeah when you've got three out of ten middle schoolers having done a substance either tried it once or using it on a daily basis and that number grows to eight out of ten by the time they get in high school and then when you look at the numbers of nine out of ten addictions in adulthood start in adolescence it's no it's it doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to understand why the world is targeting this population yeah their brains are still developing. They're still needing to be raised. They are so influenced by everything they see, hear, and do, right? But we have also a generation of parents who have just abdicated their authority to the world. Here you go. Raise my child, you know? And that is the consequence. That's the fallout that we're seeing. These children do not have relationships with their parents, And so this is what I say is that, you know, the most protective factor in these children's lives is not not being around drugs at all. It's not being sheltered. It's not all these things. It is one factor. It is one factor that can negate all of the the 10 aces, adverse childhood experiences that that a child can go through. It is the one factor that can neutralize the destructive effect of trauma. And that is a loving parent. Hmm. There is research, there's studies that have been done on inner city kids in Chicago. It was a wonderful study that was done that showed that the kids that had the protective parents that actually vocalized what they believed was right and wrong, what was allowed and not allowed in their homes, those kids, even though they were exposed to the same level of drugs, were around the same thing places that other kids who were doing drugs were, they chose not to do it because their validation was coming from their parent. They didn't need to put themselves at risk. There was not a need. There was not an emptiness, a vacuum that needed to be filled. In fact, they looked at that as a huge risk because it may destroy that wonderful relationship that they have. Mm. So it was very, very interesting. So that's how my program works. We work on the deep part of it. We work on the why. Of course, I'm going to tell kids about what drugs actually do because they need to know that. Right. You know what I'm saying? They need to know what vaping does to their lungs and how they maybe not be able to breathe one day in their life. They need to know about the thousands of chemicals that haven't even been discovered yet that are in vaping devices and the oils that Mm -hmm. they smoke. They need to know that when they're smoking dope, it's not that high feeling that's like, dude, man, I'm so relaxed. It's totally relieving my anxiety and stress. They need to know that it's actually increasing their anxiety and stress. And they're going through a temporary psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. That's why they're so relaxed because they don't know how to put two thoughts together. Yeah. 
That's why. They need to know that when they do an opioid, they get high off an opioid. Guess what? You're addicted for the rest of your life. And you may just get something that's laced with xylazine, nitrazine, now that's 50 times stronger than fentanyl. Mm. But why do kids do what they do? How do they get to that point? These kids don't have fully developed brains. They don't know what they're doing. They don't make rational decisions because they're incapable of it. It's not because they're not as smart as anybody else. They're just not developed. Right. And then on top of that, we've got COVID. COVID robbed them of two years of social emotional development. Mm. And so nowadays you've got kids that are in the eighth grade with sixth grade brains. Mm. And then on top of that, because of the trauma of COVID, their brains have now aged physically because of all of the anxiety, stress, fear, what they had to do to protect themselves. I may not live. My mom may die. My dad may die, whatever. So you've got an eighth grader with a sixth grade brain doing 10th grade things Mm. because they have been exposed to things they should have never seen and they can't process it. Yeah. But yet they think they can because what does a teen want? A teen wants to be autonomous. They want to be free. So when I ask kids to say, raise your hand, all of you who want to be free, you, you value your freedom. Of course, they all raise their hands. And I said, well, you do drugs. That's a surefire way you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, very powerful how we speak to these kids. And you know how else we speak to them? Right where they are. Yeah. They respect the fact that we do not sugarcoat it. They respect the fact that we love them enough to tell them the truth. And as I say, the truth is the truth, no matter your opinion of it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because it it seems like if having a good, a loving parent in the household is one of the, one of those factors that can make a big, huge difference. You didn't, you said, you said yourself that you didn't necessarily have that. There's a lot of these kids that do not have that. I mean, I am super grateful that I grew up with two parents that love me and show me and modeled what love is unconditional love. But so what do we do for those kids that don't have that? Well, that's a great question. When we talk about parent, it's really nice to have a parent that loves you because they're with you all the time. And you're supposed to have that relationship, that validation that comes from them. But You can also have a protective parental type of relationship with a mentor, with a teacher, with your youth pastor at church, with your neighbor's mom, your friend's mom. You know, there just has to be a relationship in that child's life that interrupts the destructive thought process, the depreciation of themselves, them feeling like they are unworthy, them maybe having been rejected by their parent. There has to be something there, another relationship in their life that negates that. And, you know, and then, then you, I also get this question, which is a great question is, well, what if some kids have great loving parents? They got two really awesome parents and why do they do what they do? Because the protective factor of a parent is not 100%. It is, it raises the likelihood you know, greatly that that child will make good choices. However, what if for that child, the validation that they're really, that they're seeking and maybe the person that rejected them is not their parent. What if it's a peer group? What if it's a sport coach? 
doesn't necessarily have to be the parent. They could be wanting to be validated by someone else. Mm -hmm. And having had that been rejected by that, they internalize that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's, you, you never can predict it. However, I will say this is that if you take some time to talk to people, if you take time to form a relationship and a bond with somebody, one of these days, they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you mm-hmm. where the pain is coming from. They're yeah. going to tell you what they're unsatisfied about. But it takes a relationship of somebody who really gives a darn. Yeah. Well, I'd like to like let's speak to the parents real quick that may be listening to this because most the mm-hmm. majority of the audience here are of parenting age. Um, we do have some younger people that do listen to the show, but, but I'd like for you to, uh, obviously you've, you've gone into the, why is this so important to have this parent in their, in their, this parental relationship, this loving relationship, this modeling of, of love and affection and, uh, approval, whatever you may have called it. What can the parents do? What, what does that look like? Again, I'm, I'm focusing on the, what, maybe that's the wrong question, but what can the parents do to help? put their children into the best possible situation to where they can stand up to where they can have that purpose in their life. They do feel love. They do feel uh, like they're getting everything. They're getting all of their needs met within the household. Wow. That is, that is a really good question and has so many different answers, but I will give you a few, few different things that I would recommend. Number one, your child's life is not yours. Your child's life is not yours. And so that means that you cannot pressure your kid to be this or that or be like you or do what you did or become that doctor or whatever else you wanted the child to be. You're not in charge of that. God is in charge of your child's purpose. And I think that if you can communicate with your child about the fact that you will love them unconditionally, no matter what they choose to do, but they need to choose to do something great. And there's no expectation there, but there's an unconditional love. And all you really care about is for your child to thrive and be a child that lives into his or her purpose. I think, number one, that's very freeing for the child to say, I don't have something to prove to my parent, so I can't fail my parent, right? That's a great start. Always affirm, affirm, affirm. Always validate. You are worthy. Your action may not be worthy of my praise, but you are worthy of my praise and my affection, right? Lots of times parents correlate the child's behavior with the value they place on the child and they and those things become intermixed. And then all of a sudden the child doesn't feel like they are loved, like they are valued. Yes, they made a mistake. Another thing that I would say is parents, logical consequences, logical consequences for your children. Your child's failure is not your failure. Your child's failure is his or her own. So make sure that you're not overreacting from a place of fear, from a place of I, my, my kid has done me wrong or taking it personal. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with that child and how he or she has made a decision that may be wrong. So doing lot, making, you know, giving that child logical consequences. And you know what? Stick to it. Stick to it. If your child did not bring his homework back from school to do it, the child doesn't deserve a butt whooping. 
what your child deserves from you as a logical consequence is, sorry, I'm not going back to school to pick up your homework. Mm. You will have to receive a zero. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and having them own that. But so many parents are like, oh, let me protect my kid, protect my kid. You know, no, don't have yeah. them learn at an early age what a logical consequence looks like because they will change their choices. Always believe as well in the word. And the word says this, teach your child the way they shall go and they will return to it. Your job as a parent is not to make your child's life amazing. Your job as a parent is to plant seeds of truth in your child. Your job as a parent is to love your child. Is to tell them who God is and how much God loves him or her and that they have a purpose in their life. And yes, some kids will stray. Just happens. But they will come back to it. And I always say, love wins. Hmm. Love wins every time. It's just difficult. You know, you just got to be committed to that. And parents, tell your kids what you think. Tell your kids what you believe. Because your child will believe as you believe. If they don't know you got a problem with drugs, then you need to tell them. Then then they won't have a problem with drugs. Well, my parent never told me that. Oh, why? Because the parent never wanted to talk about that. Let me tell you something, parents. Social media is doing that for you already. Mm. So tell your child what you believe to be right and what you believe to be wrong. And more than that, why? Tell them about your experiences. My sons know who I am. They know what I went through. And I'm okay with that. Mm. And they appreciate my honesty. Martine, so let me ask you one one final question, and then I want to jump into talking about Rise and where people can find you. Uh, but this is, it's almost a question based on my personal perspective of things that I've seen. What 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 do you believe should, is the best approach in a situation where uh, a child gets into addiction, drug addiction, goes in and out of programs, even through adulthood, and the parent keeps welcoming 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 them back in with open arms. Is there is that the wrong thing to do? Are, are they are they reinforcing this? Do, do they? Because I feel like personally, it's the as a parent, you're being torn in two directions because you want to love your child, but also you think if I just keep bringing letting them back in my house or letting them uh, not necessarily feel the consequences of this, am I just reinforcing what they're doing and, and and helping them right back on the path of getting into the addiction again. What's it seems to me like a very tricky situation for a parent because they want the best for their kids. What do you right. what would you what would you say to a parent that's going through that? Well the first thing that I would say is I'm so so just feel so much for them because they go through hell on earth. Hell on earth. And it is not a situation that anybody needs to wants to be in. What I'd also tell say to the parent is that it's not your fault. It has nothing to do with you necessarily or your parenting, what you didn't do right, what you did wrong, whatever. It's the world that we live in. And I think that parents need to equip themselves with knowledge. They need to know what addiction is. They need to do, know why it starts. They need to know why it continues, why it escalates. Because that child that's been in and out of rehab, 
that child is your child physically, but your child, it's not your child mentally because your child is dominated at that point by a drug that has complete control over his or her mind. And so therefore, when you let that child back into your house repeatedly, you're not letting the child in, you're letting the drug back into your house. And it is a really, really sad situation because you want to love your child and you can love your child. But what you're doing in an attempt to fix your kid is not going to work. What it's going to do is ruin your marriage. What it is going to do is throw you into depression. What it is going to do is possibly have you lose your job. What it is going to do is have you be violated as a parent when your child steals from you. Or possibly have you as a parent having to go pick your child up from doing something that was terrible that possibly you as a parent are now liable for. That is what's going to happen. And so it's really a catch-22 situation. And tough love really isn't the answer either. But what is the answer is figuring out what happened to your child that got them on the path to this destruction. That's the key. The source of all addiction, I ask this to people outside of mental illness, okay? Outside of people trying to medicate their mental illnesses, okay? What do you think, Jonathan, is the source of drug dependency, which turns into addiction, which can possibly steal a person's very life? I would say similar. What you probably said earlier is the difference between fear and love. Great. Great answer. That is correct. And so what we all need in this life is to be loved and valued. All of us need that. We need it to literally survive. When people do drugs or other destructive behaviors, which porn is a huge problem now among teens, is that what's released in their brain is this unusually high amount of dopamine, right? Dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, and adrenaline, man, they feel good. And maybe they get relief from whatever they're trying to escape from, or they get to be in a relationship or be validated by a group of people that would have ultimately ostracized them. What we find is, is that drugs do that, of course, on a level that is unnatural. But we also have brains that are phenomenal machines. They know how to adapt. And guess what? They like it. They like the way that feels. But what the brain doesn't like is when you come down off of that high, how low you go, because as high as you go is as low as you're going to go. And so then you start going to this downward spiral where you got to have this drug just to survive. But that's not how it started. Right. So I want to tell you this short story that about 10, 12 years ago, an orphanage orphanages in Romania And there was something awful that was happening there. And that was that children in the orphan, in the orphanages were isolating themselves, going to the corner of a room or going into different rooms or waiting till they were alone in a room and they were dying, literally dying. And nobody could figure out what was going on. 
So like an American psychologist, scientist traveled over there, different researchers went there. They looked at, they went and observed, and it literally took them two days to figure it out. What they saw was, was that these orphans got no, no attention. They had zero relationship with the caretakers. The caretakers couldn't comfort them when they cried. They couldn't really assist them with anything. They, they couldn't read to them. They couldn't tell them, talk about why mom and dad weren't there. None of that. They couldn't hug them, put them to sleep. Mm. And so these scientists and psychologists said, we know exactly what's going on here. These children are dying of broken hearts. Mm. And essentially what was happening to those kids was that they had no dopamine. They had no endorphins, no adrenaline, no serotonin being released in their brains. Now, the difference between those kids and us in our world and these adolescents that I speak to is that we've got a world that is offering us a whole bunch of options to compensate. Mm. And so that's really what we're doing. We're going and finding that outside replacement from what we should be generating naturally inside of ourselves, Mm. what we were born to generate. So now I'm going to put it together for you. When we are loved, Jonathan, when we are validated, told that we are accepted, we are worthy, we are just, just right and perfect the way we are. When we have people that want to help us to help us thrive, you know what happens? We release dopamine. Mm. We release endorphins, all those wonderful feel-good chemicals. Yeah. And isn't it funny that the very definition of God himself is the very thing that we need to literally survive? Mm. And that is God is love. Well, that's a great place for us to to end, Martine. I appreciate it. That is amazing. Uh, God is love. That's, That's the title of this whole episode there. Uh, amen. So, so tell us about, uh, about rise and where can people find you guys? Where can people connect sure. with you? So rise prevention is a, is a nonprofit established in 2021, June of 21. Um, but this is after years of me developing and working on through the technical assistance that was granted to me by the federal government through the office of national drug control policy. This is a program that is focused on teen substance use prevention. But this program is extremely unique. It is evidence-based in that everything that we do in our program is based on evidence. It's based on research. It's based on studies um, that show that these all these different elements work, right? There's all different things that work in the realm of drug prevention. Mm-hmm. But what RISE Prevention has done is that I've found a way, an innovative way to build a comprehensive school-based program that puts all these wonderful evidence-based strategies into one program. And so by doing that, we're providing a really cool, innovative solution to the drug prevention issue or lack of drug prevention, really effective drug prevention per se, because for about 20 years, we had been focusing in this country on drug prevention being done via curriculum. Kids don't think with knowledge. They don't make decisions based on knowledge. They make decisions based on emotions. Right. And so therefore, those programs were hitting the, missing the mark. 
right? They weren't hitting the mark. The only curriculum that has actually been proven effective is one that takes about 12 to 13 or 12, about 12 weeks to teach. Well, guess what happens in 12 weeks when an instructor is with a child, a relationship gets formed. Mm. But, but schools don't have the time to teach 12 hours. My goodness, in South Carolina, we're only given 10 hours of comprehensive health education yeah. that are required for kids. So I made it my mission to empower teens to resist drug use and make healthy lifestyle choices through an innovative program that looked at all the challenges, all the pitfalls, things that weren't being done right, and brings the things that we're doing right all together in one place, which also tackled the issue of the fact that parents were not being involved. So we have a huge parent component in our program. And then also bringing the community into the school to be the follow-through arm of our program. So my signature methodology is called Breakthrough Follow-Through. Really good at the breakthrough, man. Really, really good. That's what we do well. Yeah. Because when you get a breakthrough with someone, you get their self-motivated decision to make a change. Yeah. Based on that theory of behavior change. So we break through and then we facilitate follow through. Mm -hmm. Whether that is through our program, different elements that we do through the school or connecting a parent and their child to behavioral health, mental health resources, extracurricular activities, life coaching, equine-assisted coaching that's outside in the community. But I bring the community to them. So I make yeah. it easy for the parent to find resources for their teen. So when we go to a school, our program takes about six months to implement. But out of that six months that we are there working with the school, we only require one hour and 40 minutes of class time. Mm. Well, that makes it simple. That way they don't have to do the 12 hours or, or whatever you were talking about. Martin, exactly. this seems great. And people people can can find you at riseprevention.org. Is that correct? That's right. It's spelled R-I-Z-E, Rise R-I-Z-E, Prevention. Yep. Riseprevention.org. And where, where can people connect with you personally if they wanted to shoot you a message or had any additional questions? So all people have to do is just um, email me anytime at Martine, M-A-R-T-I-N-E, then the letter H at riseprevention.org. And if you or any listeners have been inspired today and want to help us to continue giving our program to more kids, y'all, we've got more more schools that are requesting our program than we can afford to give it give them to right now because we don't charge for our program. Everything yeah. is free to the schools. We would love for you to join us to be a champion for teen drug prevention because the teens are the future of your community. And if you want to know what your community is going to look like tomorrow, look at how you're doing prevention today. That's what's going to tell you. So you can become a champion joining the RISE movement. So we have another website that's more for community advocacy and for yeah. people to join um, as champions for teen drug prevention. And that is R-I-Z-E movement.org. Become a $5 a month pledge sponsor because $5 a month over the course of a year pays for an iRise student supplies. Mm. And that will help us tremendously to be able to afford the other costs that we have associated with personnel and things like that, that, you know, are associated with really running rise prevention. So yeah. Jonathan, I am so thankful to you. I yeah. love what you're doing. Congratulations to how far you've come this very successful podcast that you have. Um, and thank you so much for the honor of being able to be on your show today. Well, thank you for being here, Martine. And uh, guys, you heard it. Uh, look for riseprevention.org and risemovement.org. 
be a champion for her? You know, uh, are you looking for volunteers as well or or just from a financial perspective? How, how can no, our listeners always. help? Yes, absolutely. Always need volunteers. We've got activities that we've got coming up um, that we'd love to have volunteers help us with like golf tournaments, things like that, where we and need a presence because my team is not. They find that at risemovement.org as well. Well, actually, what they can do is that when you, well, when they go to risepreventionorg go to that contact us page, and there you can click what you would like to make a general inquiry about, and we'll get back to you on whatever you you know you're interested in. And if you want us to come to your church, you want us to come to your community organization, you've got a school that's interested in us, you can also reach out to us there as well and let us know. Awesome. Well, guys, reach out to Martine. Listen to this. Share it with some friends that you think might be able to. Uh, uh, that, that might benefit from it. And uh, golly, God is love, right? He is. And you know what? He is the one, he is the one that is going to take this program from being an upstate South Carolina program to being a statewide program and ultimately to being a nationally recognized, proven effective program in the realm of drug prevention for teens. That's right. There's the secret of success too, that you got it from our team. Thanks for listening to the Success in South Carolina podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend who needs to hear it. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over. مشيح أو زيح من الدرب